welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin unraveling science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Professor John Cryan, Professor and Chair at the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience, University College Cork, is my guest on the podcast today. So John's current research focuses on the neurobiological basis of stress-related disorders and on understanding the interaction between brain, gut and microbiome. He is the Vice President for Research and Innovation at UCC, has been a TED-Med invited speaker and was included in the 2014 list of the world's most influential scientific minds. And so John, with all that in mind, um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. Uh, delighted to be here, Megan. Thanks for, for inviting me. So I suppose, John, I'm I'm interested in you know what you were what you were like in maybe primary or secondary school, and was the scientific um, aspirations there at that young age, or where did that come from? Yeah, I, I guess you know I grew up as part of a, a big family in the west of Ireland, and and um, I I was always curious, and, and like I remember my mum when she got these childcraft books, which you have no idea what I'm talking about, but they, <laughs> anyway, they they were in the days of encyclopedias, and then we had the Britannica books, and you know. M- myself and my brother would just devour these uh, as the eldest two in the family and you know so that curiosity uh, was there uh, from an early age but I was um, I wasn't very focused in school so I, like I kept all my options open uh, I did accountancy for leaving search you know I I, I, uh, I, I had a real passion for the arts and English and you know I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do in college you know and I was you know, this was around the time of, you know, the the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, when, when you know, things like g- genetic engineering and biotechnology were coming into their own. And so, you know, I guess they were the, the things that attracted me into science, was, was these big questions about who we are and how, how, how we navigate things. But uh, I could have easily done a BA and become a, you know, classical medievalist or something like that, you know. <laughs> so where did you, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I'm from uh, Castle Rhea in Roscommon. So, uh, in, in the, and I went to college in, in Galway, in, in what was then UCG, now in UI Galway. The Midlands, I said, I'm from Westmead, so we're... Oh, you're from Westmead, okay. okay. <laughs> from similar, similar areas. So yeah. I, I suppose when you were, um, you know, thinking about going to college, and like you said, you went to NUIG, what I suppose solidified that decision that you wanted to go on and do biochemistry? Yeah, and, and again, I didn't want to do biochemistry. I, that, that was the degree I ended up with. Well, I was the first in my family to go to college and um, uh, to university, and so and, and my, neither of my parents finished secondary school. So you know, I, it wasn't within the culture, but it, but it was within the culture of of, 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 of the, the the classroom in terms of you know the, the secondary school in Castlery at the time. You know, you, it, there was kind of an expectation building that you would go to university or you, you at least equip yourself with all of the the um, uh, matriculation aspects. And we had to do this other exam called the matric in them days. <laughs> Uh, so I'm sounding really old uh, to go to, to go to university. 
university. Um, and then I just went in and did a general science degree because I'm, I'm actually a big fan of general things because I, I wouldn't have a clue. And I was, as I said, I was fascinated by some of the things that were happening in society. You know, we, we had the AIDS epidemic, we had genetic engineering, we had, you know, this, this idea of biology and society really merging and very much part of what we were hearing about uh, in them days. And so I thought going and do a general science degree would be good. I had done physics and, and, and biology for the Leaving Cert, um, um, but I had no chemistry. So I went into college without any chemistry and that was that wasn't fun, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was very general program. It allowed me then to, to decide, well, what I didn't like, and, and I knew I didn't like physics that much. I was dumping chemistry as quickly as I could. And so, you know, I, w I was able to position myself into areas that I did like. And so I did physiology and microbiology and biochemistry in second year. And um, from that, then you picked other modules. And I got really excited about genetics and the impact that genetics could have. And there was no genetics degree in Galway at the time. So uh, biochemistry was the nearest overall. And I did microbiology, but I, was, I wasn't I was that, you know, I, I, some aspects of which fermentation technology and things like that, I found just really boring. Mm -hmm. And so biochemistry would seem more exciting at the time. And, you know, there were lots of changes in diagnostics, in cancer biology, uh, and in neuroscience. And I was really intrigued. We learned a lot about neurochemistry, and we were learning a lot of the molecular basis of, of, of brain and behavior at that stage so I became a biochemist. Did you go straight into a PhD then? Yeah so so I, I, I was then deciding you know what did I want to do and I remember going to a, a friend of mine who was over in, in, in pharmacology um, and uh, he's now uh, Tom Connor who's now subsequently uh, passed away and, and Tom was a PhD student in pharmacology and pharmacology in Galway had a, a history of taking on uh, biochemists because there was no pharmacology degree at the time that there is subsequently and so uh, I remember going talking to the prof there and and he basically was told me to go away and go to somewhere that the roof isn't falling down and that the place isn't collapsed and you should, you know, if you're really ambitious about this, you should get out of Ireland. You know, and, and of course, being the stubborn person that I am, if someone tells you you shouldn't do something, then I was <laughs> like, well, you know. And he basically told me, if you get your funding, if you get your own funding, you can come, which was very generous of him. Uh, so I was able to get one of the university scholarships that uh, was £3,000, about €5,000 at the time. To It was teaching-oriented, so I had to do some demonstrating with that. And uh, so then I arrived in, in pharmacology uh, as a biochemist. And uh, he got us all... Uh, there was a number of us that started at the same time uh, for, with different backgrounds and, and, and he spent the first three months, we all had to learn his book and another book, the Cooper, Bloom and Roth Neuropharmacological Basis uh, or Biochemical Basis of Neuropharmacology. And so we had to learn these two books by Christmas and have an exam and we had to pass the exam in our first year PhDs to be, to, to be allowed to go forward. So, so, and he was an inspirational mentor and he really pushed us really hard and I still, I see, he's still alive and I still see him and uh, you know it's just wonderful to, to, to I've learned a lot from him I a lot of his methods wouldn't stack up within our society today in terms of how you know what was going on like all lab meetings were at four o'clock on a Friday you know uh, there was an expectation he would be in on a Saturday so there was an expectation that we would be in on a Saturday oh really um, you know there was it was a different culture yeah uh, the lab it was a lab where we we, we recycled I had no money like this is mid mid 1990s you know there was no money in Ireland like research funding only properly began in Ireland you know at around 2000 and then with the foundation of science foundation Ireland but in this in these days you know we recycled 
tinfoil that we would use to store brains. We would, you know, make sure that we kept the tinfoil so we reuse it again. And uh, there was a time when, when someone had a bright idea that we had to clean our own animal cages. So we would be looking after all our own animals. Um, and so then someone had the bright idea that it would be good to reuse the shredded paper uh, instead of sawdust in the animals' houses. So we had all this sticky paper and tried to scrape this off. I mean, it was, you know, third world, uh, <laughs> third world in terms of, of, of what we, you know, and then the equipment was all old, uh, spectrophotometers and various old uh, uh, scintillation counters and various things and very crude science. But what I learned most about was you were on your, you were, had to be top of your game intellectually. And you had to be top of your game in terms of understanding what you do with the material. And you, you know, and he had a system of basically all PhD students got to be shipped abroad to work in his friend's labs who had a lot more money. And it was a wonderful uh, experience. So I got to go to Australia. I got to go to the University of Melbourne. I went for six months. I stayed for 15 during my PhD. And it was, it was brilliant, brilliant uh, exposure. And everyone got, people went to the States, to Canada, to Hungary, to all over Europe. So, you know, it, it, was, it was very much uh, a, 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 an interesting time. And uh, you didn't know any different. So you didn't know, you had no expectations of publishing in high impact journals. So you didn't really know what that meant. Uh, at the time, so you just wanted to create, be able to create narratives around the, the data you had and publish it. And so he, we, people published well uh, out of it, but your ambitions for publication weren't as clear. Uh, it wasn't until I went to the States then afterwards, after my PhD as a postdoc, that I began to really, really understand, you know, uh, what you could do, the potential of what you could do if your lab was well funded. I suppose, like, thinking of you coming in on a Saturday and, you know, having your lab meetings on a Friday evening, uh, I feel like for people who are listening who are not in the job that both myself and you are in, they'd be like, why would you do that? Like, why would you put up with that? But I think that's the labour of love that is, you know, scientific research. Yeah, and in them days, work-life balance wasn't something that we aspired to, you know, and I think there's a better appreciation now uh, overall for general work-life balance. And, and, and I, I think that's where, you know, that, that's been a big sea change in terms of how, how, how we manage things uh, overall, um, you know. You said that you moved to America then. So I know that you were in UPenn, but also in Scripps in La Jolla. Yeah. Um, so I actually did a summer internship in, in Scripps in La Jolla in 2015. I loved it. It was amazing. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. What area, like, what area was that? I was in the regenerative medicine um Okay, lab. so you were on the main, you were on the main campus. Uh, yeah, I, I was over in CBN Seven. Yeah, it was over. It was just across the road. It was just fabulous. I mean, like, what a location. I mean, you know, uh, you, you know, you have surfing. You know, go surfing for breakfast, and <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and I understand why people don't like leaving California because it it, it was such the, such a wonderful, and also so many brilliant people around you. Everyone there is is smarter than you and brighter than you, and working in a in a from all over the world. You know, we had there was like nine postdocs in our lab, and they were all from all different countries and there was one other Irish guy and I there together and you know I mean it's just a great place to make friends to to do cool science and to explore for me it was my second postdoc so I, I, I had done my first postdoc at Penn and University of Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and so I was quite how will I say mature when I knew what I needed to get out of my time in Scripps and uh, it, it allowed me then to move to 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 industry 
uh, because uh, Scripps always has a corporate partner. And when I was there, his corporate partner was Novartis. And Novartis then, uh, the, the, I got to know some of the scientists in Novartis, and then they had an opening in Novartis in Switzerland. And they offered me the opportunity, did I want to, did I want to run my own lab in Switzerland? And, uh, you know, so it was, I, I, I ended up cutting my time in Scripps a bit shorter than I had expected. And, and you know, it was kind of, you know, it, it wasn't a difficult decision, but it was, you know, it, it was one where you have, uh, you know, did, a different feeling for because it was so nice there and I had such a good time there and and, and I was sad to leave it uh, but then you know I got the opportunity to lead my own group with you know researchers uh, and technician technical support and start my own lab and, and that was in 2002. And so that move to Novartis was that like a, a move away from academia and into industry or was it kind yeah. of okay so you did because a lot of people um, have asked me uh, they've asked to me to ask specific questions to researchers and that's a big one especially for early career researchers like myself was there ever a point that you wanted to leave academia and if so yeah. what brought well, you back then you know yeah, so, 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 so uh, yeah and I'm happy to explore that I, I never felt leave I was leaving anything I felt I was leaving California but but this was the next progressive step for me when because I was moving to do research in industry yeah so I wasn't leaving to do like a lot of people leave academia to do medical writing or quality control or uh, technical support or different like I was leading they were offering me my own lab you know yeah uh, in, uh, do you want your own lab and have you know um, uh, a technical staff of three to do your experiments in the area of, of brain science that I was working on uh, so for me it was it was like it wasn't a difficult decision now then when I went to industry it was quite an interesting move because most people in the industry had already been well a lot of them had been institutionalized so they were working you know uh, for the company and and one of the things my PhD advisor Brian Leonard had said to me and he, he said it to me around this time again he said John never work for a company okay. and I was looking at him because but I was remembering that he had worked for companies so I was like what do you mean and he he, he reframed it and said always work for yourself in and that can be in a company yeah. but as long as you're working for yourself you know then you you're not going to lose track of things and so i came into industry uh with amazing colleagues uh, you know in my late 20s and, and i have my own lab and i'm you know i look back at it i was quite what's the word uh, exuberant and uh, you know a feeling that i could was king of the world in terms of being able to to, to to conquer all aspects and and then I come into a major company that has no resource issues you like you know lots of people who are very smart some of the smartest people I know are working in industry like some of the brightest brains we have uh, are there and there's no impetus to publish there's no problem with publishing, but it's not part of what they do. You know, and they don't believe anything. I'm generalizing now, but of course, they don't believe anything that comes out of academia because they feel it's all tainted by low end, end numbers, not reproducible, and the push to publish. So there they, they, they want to reproduce everything over and over again, um, build in positive and negative controls to everything. And the rigor is so much better. People always wonder about industry-funded science. I'm like, well, in industry, the science is pretty good. In general and and so uh, but I had access then to knock out mice for everything that I wanted I could call someone up and say you know we, we was very excited about uh, gene delivery we were very excited about doing um, siRNA delivery to the brain we I had genomic support I had people that, that could you know 
get things going. We did the first uh, in vivo behavioral uh, studies with, with, with siRNA, non-viral siRNA. We published that in, in, in PNAS at the time. You know, uh, I, had, I had lots of fun lots of fun and then I got an NIH grant together with my postdoc supervisor from Scripps so then I had my own team funded by the NIH in industry doing work on my own projects which was helped me maintain a very prolific output during these days and like you know when you have access to tools you can start pushing things out pretty quickly like I remember um, a, a paper came out about a specific peptide that was involved in stress and you know uh, a new peptide that had been discovered and, and that came out on a Monday and by Friday I had the peptide in my lab and was giving it to an animal like you know like you know like it's that level of uh, of things that you can do in industry uh, that, that you know it was fabulous it was it was really great and I, my first PhD student was there was funded by the company and I had a number of postdocs and a, a lab of about eight people in, in total uh, but by the time I was I, I, I was leaving overall Wow, God. So, so why did you leave then? Why did you go yeah, back? So, 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 <laughs> again, I get to a stage in your life and your career where you start making more life choices than career choices. And so I was living in Switzerland, right on the border between France and, and Switzerland. So I lived in France and I used to walk over. So my French was terrible. My German was worse, <laughs> but I needed both uh, for day to day. Uh, and then, um, but that was fine. Basel was a very much a, a expat place. There was plenty of people. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I have to say, uh, you know, it was a very comfortable place to live, very civilized uh, city to live in, um, in the now. Okay, so it's very much a place where you live in the now. But then you start thinking at some point, you start thinking, well, where do I want to be in five years time? Mm. Where do I want to be? And, and geographically, it became quite clear to me, I didn't want to be in Switzerland. It just culturally wasn't something that I felt, uh, like it's very beautiful to live in the now, but I don't think I want to be here in, in five years time. I don't think it's a place I want to you know, have a family. I didn't find it easy to navigate the social circus, uh, circles. You're never going to be Swiss, ever. It's such a uh, really, uh, you know, it's like almost like being from Cork. You'll never be from Cork either. <laughs> you know, you know but, but, but Switzerland is the Cork of Europe, you know. And, and so you, you make choices. And so what happened was that I... I applied, uh, I came home for a friend's wedding in Ireland and, you know, Ireland was booming. The Nature had just done a, a, an editorial called Treasure Ireland. It's a two-page about how wonderful funding was in Ireland and how great Ireland was as a place to do it. Uh, so there was lots of incentives to try and get people back. And so I applied for, I applied for two jobs, uh, one in Trinity and one in Cork. And I got the one in Cork and uh, in the pharmacy school. Uh, both were in the pharmacy school. The rest is kind of history. And for me, pharmacy was interesting. I, and I, I wasn't even sure when I was going for these, wh whether I was do it, wh whether I would do it, like take a 35% pay cut, give up a permanent job, uh, you know, not have, you know, immediate startups. There's no such thing in Ireland of, of startups. So I, um, you know, it was a risky decision at, at some point. But I'd been out of Ireland almost 10 years now. So mm. it was kind of, you know, you're like, okay, now or never type situation. And pharmacy school was starting here in, in Cork uh, as a brand new program. So they were doing a lot of hiring. And for me, pharmacy is very like uh, working in, in industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, because it, you need to, combine pharmacology, basic biochemistry, biology with uh, delivery aspects and clinical practice. 
And so that's what I was doing a lot on in the industry, you know? And so it wasn't that strange to come back into this. So I could talk to the chemists. I could have conversations with the clinicians because that's what I did on a daily basis when I was in Novartis. And, uh, you know, I, I never looked back on it. And then within two years, Novartis closed down the entire neuroscience site in Basel. Oh, wow. Okay. God, so it was yeah. a very good move then. Well, you know, I mean, most people, they also, you know, the Swiss look after people, people were mostly, but it was, it was very disruptive for all the people behind, yeah. you know, uh, overall. So I, I was, um, yeah, no, I, I've never regretted coming back to Ireland. And it was nice, you know, coming home. I was still four hours away from my mother at the time. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was, it, it, you know, you still had that distance. Yeah. Uh, Cork was the city that I really knew well. I had been down for the jazz a few times, but it wasn't somewhere that, 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 that I, you know, knew. So it was a whole new adventure and a new and an exciting uh, place to be. Well, I suppose this leads us nicely into you know the research that you have been doing down in UCC uh, for the past number of years so you know give us an overview as to what your lab is really focused on and um, I kind of mentioned yeah. that at the start and, and I, I can frame it on the, on the chronology if you want because I came back as a stressed neurobiologist with a lot of experience in, in, in behavioral neuroscience from my time in industry but I never worked on the microbiome and then I come to Cork and it becomes quite clear that uh, APC Microbiome Ireland or the, the APC as it was known was was one of the big shows in town here and I got to hang out with some of the really cool uh, re clinical researchers like Ted Dynan, uh, Fergus Shanahan and others uh, here that were really doing cutting-edge work and trying to understand the effects of microbes on host physiology but they didn't have anyone who was looking at behavior in the team or anyone anyone doing neuroscience other than Ted uh, there so it was a great opportunity for me to jump on and start playing with them uh, trying to look at ways that the microbiome could be shaping other aspects of physiology including brain and so we made some seminal discoveries back then to that to show that the microbiome was indeed uh, playing a key role in in shaping uh, brain and behavior so we, we used um, um, three approaches. One, we showed that in our animal models of stress, the microbiome uh, composition was changed and that like, there was an enduring effects of trauma in the microbiome. So that was a big move for us. Uh, Siobhan Mahoney was a PhD student who, who led that out. And then we looked at what, well, what would happen if we take out microbes, so germ-free animals, and we had a germ-free facility funded here through SFI, uh, so, so we had access to tissue, brain tissue from animals that grew up without microbes, and we showed, for the first time, we really showed that w th these brains are completely messed up. They're not developing properly. And we were really excited about that, and then all of a sudden two papers came out that scooped us uh, from Sweden and from uh, Canada. Uh, so we were a bit like put back put back in our box a little bit, uh, but, but it was great because we had the same data using different strains of mice, different ways of looking at it, but it was all very uh, showing convergence. Um, and then third bit of evidence we got, it's now a decade since we published this paper, we had a visiting um, scientist, John Bienestock, and, and, and so we used one of the bacteria that he was interested in, uh, lactobacillus, and we showed that when you give this lactobacillus to mice, you can affect stress behaviors, anxiety behaviors, um, uh, and learning. And that we showed that then that the vagus nerve is involved, and vagus is one of the cranial nerves that sends signals from the brain to the gut, and we, we cut the vagus nerve and all of the effects were gone. So as I like to remind people, this tells us that what happens in Vegas doesn't just stay in Vegas, but will affect our emotions. And so that, all of that, and we subsequently published on our, our, our germ-free data as well. So we had all of this data coming together at the same time 
really showing uh, conclusive evidence that the microbiome is a, is, is a, is, is a potential target for brain behavior, stress-related disorders, etc. And so we've been on that journey ever since, and that's what my lab now is. We have over almost 50 people in the group still, uh, and uh, from all over the world, I think there's 26 countries or something, right. you know. So our lab is really a magnet for people to come who are interested in two big questions. One is, what are the mechanisms as to how microbes in the gut can signal to the brain? And secondly, can we translate any of this from animals to the human condition to human psychology? So it, it, that, that's what we're doing, and uh, it's, it's exciting and it's great, um, but it, it is challenging, and uh, keeping this show on the road is not without its challenges. Uh, you know, it's, it's the people in the lab that, that, that do all the hard work. I just have to try and keep the money in. <laughs> you know, a probably very silly question, but what is a microbiome for people who may not oh, be aware? Yeah, sorry. sorry, so the microbiome is the collection of microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi, etc., that we have in and on our bodies. And so in terms of numbers, we have, where if you look at the genes we have, we are 99% microbial. So right. think of all the money we spent on the Human Genome Project and it's for less than 1% of our genes. We have more microbial cells than we do human cells. Microbes were there first, so we have to reflect that all of humans have evolved in the context of, my, uh, of microbes. Mitochondria are just microbes who got lost uh, and were taken up by cells. So, so you know, we, we are living in a microbial world. It's really important, you know. And where do we get these from? So for the most part, we're taught to be sterile in utero and we get our microbes as a kind of a birthday present from our parents, from our moms, uh, as we come out the birth canal. And so these early frontier bacteria then can start to help inform the developing immune system and really program a lot of the systems within the body. And so that's why we're really interested in the perinatal period. Uh, we also have programs in adolescence and aging, but in the perinatal period, you know, if for example, the mom is, has a C-section, then that's something we've been interested in because in an evolutionary relay race, the baton gets dropped with a C-section. And so mm -hmm. different microbes are handed over. They tend to be from the skin or the hospital environment. And so we're trying to understand the negative consequences of that, A, but, but, but with a clear view that we don't want to develop anything that would, like C-section is a life-saving intervention uh, and so but the, the the second part of it is trying to develop strategies that where one third of all pregnancies today will end in a c-section in ireland and so can we do something to kind of mine these microbes and that's some some of our ongoing projects are based around that yeah because i watched one of your your talks recently and it, you know you were talking about the positivity of breastfeeding as well and how yeah. there's some maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some sugars in breast milk that it's can't... Exactly. Yeah, no. No, like this was one of the really eureka aspects of this work. When I was reading an article which really reinforced that the human milk oligosaccharides, so these are the sugars that are in human breast milk, are about 20 times more complex than those in cows. And so in the infant formula market, what they're trying to do is trying to emulate uh, human breast milk, but you're dealing with a different starting point to get on with. And these sugars that humans have, they cannot be broken down by the infant. And that's also quite uh, surprising. So with, with that on board, then I kind of, uh, I was like, evolution doesn't you know, do things without a reason. And so evolution has kind of given over uh, some of the activity of breaking down these sugars to the microbes. 
and they're broken down to key chemicals like sialic acid, which are really important for brain development. Yeah, it's so there's a huge function of, of this microbiota for all health. Absolutely, and we're learning more and more about it from, there isn't an area of medicine that isn't affected by it in some way. It's just to try and understand what is the relative contribution of the signals that come from the microbes. And people often ask me, it's like, oh, is there anything this microbiome isn't involved in? I hear this. Uh, and I answer and say probably not because the microbes were there first. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing of like, you know, you are what you eat in a, in a way. Absolutely. It is, is what you are, what you eat. And more importantly, you probably are what your microbes eat. Okay. Um, John, I really want to talk to you as well about that key paper that came out um, recently in Nature Aging. And yeah. kind of, you will explain it way more eloquently than I will. But just to say, it was absolutely everywhere. It was, there was talk shows in America featured it. As a, yeah. Where was it featured? It was, what was the talk the, show? The, the, the Steve Colbert uh, yeah. show. The, yeah. That's huge. So yeah, tell us about that study. It's so exciting. Yeah. So, so uh, our work that's been going on in Cork for some time has shown that there's a link between aging and the microbiome. Uh, work from my colleague Paul O'Toole and we showed this in mice some years ago and we also showed that if you targeted uh, the microbiome through diet you could you could reverse some of the effects of aging but we really needed a killer experiment we needed a way to show well is the microbiome really involved in brain aging and specifically on terms of brain aging and so we took microbes from young animals and, tra and transplanted them to old animals and this kind of uh, poo transplant <laughs> sounds really yucky, but it, it, it was able to, by shifting the composition of the microbes, we were able to slow down or rewind some of the effects of aging. So we looked at this at the level of the peripheral immune system and the immune system of the gut and in the brain immune system in terms of neuroimmunity. We also looked at it in relation to the chemical metabolome that's going on in the brain area involved in learning and memory called the hippocampus and in behavior. And so we were able to show quite surprisingly, I have to say I was surprised that it, that it worked, that the microbes in the gut uh, are able to slow down. If you change them, you can slow down the effects of, of aging. And so before all your listeners go out and start trying to steal poo from babies' <laughs> nappies or anything like that, what, what this is really advocating is that we need to look after our microbes as we age and, and look at ways of fostering microbial diversity, but by usually through diet, I would, I, we're advocating more so, and that that would help us our brains age better. So would that be kind of probiotics or, you know, things like this? Yeah, I, my my point about probiotics is, is quite interesting, is, is that you have to be very careful about what you're paying money for. If anyone's selling you anything, always ask, where's the evidence and how strong is the evidence? So an awful lot of what's for sale in the probiotic world has no evidence. So, you know, you need to look at w where the science is behind it. You wouldn't just randomly go into a pharmacy and say, oh, drugs are good for you. Let's take some drugs uh, <laughs> if, if you have a headache, you know, you, and that's what we're doing in this in this field. So there's a lot of snake oil out there. A lot of people, it's very unregulated. And, the, and then the second part of what I, I, I always like to advocate is that we want to create solutions that are going to be useful for the people who are going to, who are going to need them the most. And often that's people in lower socioeconomic um, areas or people that just don't have access to to middle-class probiotic supplements, you know. So I always strongly advocate a whole diet approach uh, as well. So fiber is king, fermented foods. In Ireland, we have a really bad relationship with fermented foods. And, you know, it takes effort, but it costs very little. Uh, and so things like kefir and kombucha and things like that would be very useful. 
So, you know, you've kind of touched on, I suppose, the importance of the microbiome in early life uh, and then in ageing. I know you're also interested in adolescence and, and middle life, but I know that you had your recent book, The Psychobiotic Revolution. So what does that entail? What does that mean, I suppose, for human health? Yeah, so so we gave it this, well, the editors gave it this big title of revolution. And <laughs> it's just the beginning of a revolution. It's just a, a new way of thinking about how we could, like, you know, basically mine the microbiome uh, for mental health benefits and we can do that through diet or through other approaches uh, overall including probiotics and prebiotics and so we're very excited about what psychobiotics uh, could be could bring and 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 it was really a, a call to arms to inform the public about science-based uh, approaches because as i say you know we need to be careful about the the snake oil in this in this field so it was just you know there was simple we had a little par- pyramid in there about you know from your diet you know which of these substances do we know is good better for your microbiome uh you know and which are worse and which should you have more frequently and again it's the fibers the fermented foods uh, etc the, the king in this regard and then to warn people about some of the some of the problems but also to educate people about you know that what's going on in your gut can actually affect what's going on in your brain mm. and you know your state of gut will inform your state of mind yeah i know it's fascinating but you know i think even the thought of people with IBS or IBD I think stress and everything can have a huge impact on on that so there's a link there definitely oh for sure and, and, and the problem is in medicine as a discipline we compartmentalize the body so if you're in psychiatry or neurology you're from the neck upwards if you're in gastroenterology you're focusing on the gut if you're in dermatology it's the skin like you know all of these things are connected and you know it means we have to think much more holistic uh, in terms of looking at these interconnectivities I, I, I watched one of your talks and I just thought it was so lovely the way you described, you know, the language we have around the gut um, and how, you know, it plays into our, our everyday language all the time. Ah, absolutely. I, I mean, the, you know, this is one of the things when my sceptical neuro, neuroscience colleagues are wondering why, if I'm interested in the neurobiology of emotions, that I am just so fixated on the gut, I remind them of this language, of things like gut feelings and gut instincts, how we're gutted when we're disappointed, how we make gutsy moves when we're brave, how we have butterflies in our tummy if we're nervous. You know, so I think, you know, once you start to, to reframe it, you know, uh, and people often talk about, um, you know, how they can feel their stress, etc., in their gut, and 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 now we're also learning about neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease, how it may begin in the gut, and so there's people beginning to look at this outside of of, of traditional areas overall. Yeah, so I mean, in a way, it is like a bit of a revolution because, you know, like you said, the microbiome does seem to play a role in almost every aspect of health. Um, so it's, it's such an exciting area to be in. No, it's, 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 been a, it's been a real fun ride. And it's been really fun to watch people who were very sceptical of, of, uh, with the appropriate data uh, really begin to realise, OK, maybe these crazy yogurt makers in Cork are onto something. <laughs> So I suppose, John, you know, following on from that, what excites you about what you do and what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I think that the main thing that, that excites me is the ability for this 
feel to, to keep taking me uh, in different places uh, all the time. Like, I've never stopped being surprised about where the microbiome uh, will take me. Like, you know, we found, uh, using an unbiased RNA-seq approach, we found that the pattern of myelination, uh, and my lab is not a myelin lab, myelin is basically the insulation on which nerve cells use to, to conduct, like you have in your house, you have insulation, and we need myelination. And, and people study it in the context of demyelinating disorders like multiple sclerosis. And we found that you could, you know, a big discovery of ours was that myelination patterns in the prefrontal cortex were different in, in, in the absence of microbes. Like these types of findings just taking us into into places that I would never have expected, you know, and it, 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 we're just at the beginning, so there's so much to be learned. Um, and that's one great thing about, about being a neuroscientist interested in mental health is I'll never be without a job because we never will, we never will solve it. Mm -hmm. and, and that reflects, you know, part of my why I keep wanting to push the field forward uh, overall. Um, and it's, it's really also then to try and bring other people on that journey with you. I mean, I'm very lucky that, uh, you know, I, I've had almost 20 trainees now with faculty positions around the world. Wow. Uh, you know, I've had amazing people go into industry and, and have really important jobs there who come through our lab. And so, you know, it's, it's brilliant to see how people who can come through our, our training here uh, can leave with the capabilities and the attributes uh, to be able to be successful, whatever success means for them in their career. Yeah, well, I suppose it's, a, I'm sure, a testament to your mentorship as well. Your mentorship, you know, so, you know, and, and mentorship is tough. And, and this is one of the things that, that like, you know, uh, there's been many failures in that. It's not that everyone is successful. And it's, it's, it's really about understanding. Uh, for me, it's, it's really understanding about what does success mean for the individual. And sometimes they don't know. And yeah. that's where, that, <laughs> you know, I can help people once they have an idea where they want to go. But if they don't know where they want to go, it's harder. Uh, overall and 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 within the Irish landscape it's tough you know to understand especially when, when there's lots of other pulls on people from society I suppose thinking about that you know what are the things that frustrates you about ac academia or what we could change you know you touched on it earlier you know when you made your move back to Ireland you had to take a pay cut you know things like this I really want to have these conversations with researchers such as yourself yeah. and in your position as to how we could I suppose change that for the future yeah. No, the interesting thing, I, I did take a pay cut from industry, but like the pay in Ireland is was significantly uh, higher than it was in the UK at, at junior levels. So, so I think pay for academia isn't bad. Like I, I think that's not. Uh, I think pay for. Re I think the biggest issue we have is we don't have a formal research framework of training uh, and career for. If if I didn't want to be a teacher and lecturer and uh, or be a university administrator or <laughs> now I'm the vice president for research you know but if I wanted just to be in the lab and do research like it's very difficult you have to work in a state lab uh, like Chagosk or, or, or one of the state state national labs uh, to, to have that and and that's a pity that we don't foster careers that you know or you know that would allow us to have professional researchers not everyone wants to lead a group but, you know, and, and I think that's what, that's what I would really like to, to, to see. I think, what else would I like to see change? I guess I'd like the, the, this dichotomy that we have in academia about teaching versus research. I think that's misplaced and it's largely due to some how we recruit uh, overall. Most good researchers enjoy teaching. Mm. Uh, 
but do they enjoy having to do timetabling and ha- having to do uh, exam invigilation and all of that? Probably not. So are we using the time of people to the best uh, overall and can we build supports to allow top researchers be exposed in a teaching capacity to the brightest people for, for the future, but also uh, to, 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 to be as impactful of, of, of what they are? And then the other thing that is uh, interesting to me in my role as VP for Research here in Cork is about the, the middle career area. Like, why would someone keep going? Mm. You know, like, how do we keep the fire in the belly of our researchers to keep going as opposed to be out on the golf course? They can give their lectures, they can, you know, and to have a funding system that's able to acknowledge uh, that we need funding at all stages of the career. Early careers are getting more attention, thank God, at last. Uh, but also, uh, uh, we need we need to look at look after the people that that were early careers ten years ago. Yeah, and where do they go next? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's such an an interesting one, and I think the conversation like this should be, I suppose, happening. Um, probably more on like a, a, a wider scale. Uh, this podcast is small, but um, I like to kind of ask people about this because I suppose I'm looking for advice as well. You know, like if you were, if you were talking to yourself maybe 10, 15 years ago, what, what, would, you, what would you say? So it, it's interesting. And, and I think that, you know, I generalize. So I was head of a department, which was almost three quarters female academics, you know, and, and it's something I really w- was delighted to see that department grow double in size and then we have a really, uh, and, and I see differences in terms of, of, of how, uh, and I'm generalizing, but, but uh, 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 how young uh, male academics like me would have behaved versus sometimes young female academics where there's a very strong imposter syndrome at, at play, where they, they are worried about all of the lifestyle aspects, the timing, having children, navigating that. And, and it was like, the, my department is great because every, both the male and female, it was a relatively young, young department, all had kids. So, you know, it, it creates a culture where having children is, if you want to and choose to or you know can have or you know that it, that's normal so when I look at back at myself I, I came back to Ireland I wasn't married I was very much focused on my career I was very you know single-mindedly career you know science so I felt I you know I look back at it now you know I you know there was almost a, a manic phase to it in terms of I felt I could do anything <laughs> and I remember calling my friend in Trinity and, and like they had promised me loads of things here. And when I arrived, none of it was there, you know, and uh, my teaching load was three times higher than they had, had promised. And and so I called my friend in, in Trinity and I said, oh, God, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. What did I just do? You know, uh, because, you know, you're trying to navigate it. But but I also always kind of felt that I was going to be successful. And I see this with with early career female scientists. They they sometimes don't have that same self belief that male researchers have. Mm-hmm. And I would really try and encourage them. Of course they can. And you know I I, I try it among my, my my postdocs now to 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 that they can feel every bit of that. But I just feel that you know it it's a career where you have to keep at it. Mm-hmm. You have to keep persistence. And we need to teach. Uh, people to, to persist. We need to p- t- teach people about failure, whatever failure means. Because, you know, like ev- for every five grants I put in, I get one. Okay? My lab is funded very well. But I recognize that I have to do, you know, so, but people don't talk about their failures. Mm. It was really great last week to see a tweet from a Nobel Science 
Uh, he, he won the Nobel Prize a month ago, and his grant didn't get funded uh, by the NIH last week. You know, and that's wonderful to see that we can normalise that. That's what happens. Yeah. You know, my last big grant didn't get funded. You know, and 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 we, we hide that. We hide behind that, and we don't create the mentorship that we need for people to say, keep going. You know, and you know, you didn't get your ERC through. And, and I sit on the ERC panel, and I see this at the ERC level. You know, we, we, you know, there's a big gender divide there and it's, it's that self-belief thing so i think we need to do more and it's not just getting women into science it's keeping them there yeah. like there's enough women in science i, I actually think we just need to uh, create a, a, an environment where it's okay and realize that that, that you know that if this is a long haul between the ages of you know 27 and 67 there's 40 years if you spend five of them on maternity cover that's okay you know yeah. and we need role models to to, to, to advocate and we need allies uh, to push that forward so the me back then was very exuberant and very well i still have some of that confidence i was very conf cocky you know, but like I had come from uh, uh, when I was in Novartis, I was meeting, you know, Eric Kandel, all these Nobel Prize winners. I was meeting, I had been exposed to, you know, and having that, the, the, having been left Ireland and worked in different environments, you gain confidence about, you realize that it's not all about the techniques you have. It's all, it's about how you can talk to people about science and problem solve. And if you feel confident that you can actually help to solve a problem, and that's how I still navigate what I'm doing today is to help solve problems, then you have confidence. Okay, then I can offer something. And, you know, and I, and I think that's what we need to we need to see more of. And I, I really would like to advocate for. Yeah, no, I mean, I can definitely emphasize with the imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people can. I suppose, John, my last question for you um, is, if you weren't a scientist, if this wasn't your job, what do you think you might be doing right now in another universe? In another universe, I'd be a bad poet. Uh, um, probably uh, a bad poet. Do you write poetry uh, now? Don't. I, I, I wouldn't inflict it on the world. But I love poetry and I love the arts and I love, you know, I, I get a kick out of, you know, uh, that side of the world. And I really like interdisciplinarity between the humanities and, and, and sciences. Would I, I definitely wouldn't be a farmer in Roscommon. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, like I can tell you that much uh, overall. Um, you know, I could have gone into being a boring accountant. I, it's hard to know. It's hard to know where life would have taken me. I, I think probably something in the creative, the, the poetry is there because it's be something in the creative uh, field. Uh, my musicianship was never good enough, but I, I, I think something like that or, or in drama or something like that. We might see a poetry book out of you yet, maybe in the future. <laughs> uh, you know, I just think, uh, you know, in, in my last article that we published in a cell press journal, we were able to quote Yeats. And so it, 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 it just takes, uh, I like to, 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 to just inflict it in every now and then, uh, whatever else. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's one of the great things about Irish education is the broadness of it, that you can actually get exposed to things like that. And I like to, I think that, that enriches how we write and how we think. Uh, also because it gives us a different perspective. Absolutely. Well, listen, Jonathan, so lovely to chat to you today. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.